Welcome to Riverside. A couple of quick announcements to hit while the kids are on their way out. Father's Day barbecue today after uh, the second service, well, third service, I guess, technically. Uh, about 12.30, 12.35, we should be getting started. It's a barbecue. We are um, providing the hamburgers and the hot dogs. If you are interested in coming back, grab some sides and desserts and come on back. Also, we're looking for somebody to be willing and able and interested in grilling it around, uh, starting around noon. So if that's something that you're uh, uh, interested or willing in do, to do, then uh, let me know. Ignite, Rev, and Thrive, all three of our youth events taking place this week. Jam Camp is coming up, and that will fill up. So if you're planning on sending your kid, please talk to Mitchell. And uh, Flower Barrels, I don't know if there are any more out there that are, uh, there are four? Four more barrels out there that still need, uh, they look very lonely, they look very sad. So if you are interested in adopting one or two, then uh, grab some colorful flowers and plant them up. So, we're in part 17 of this lesson series, uh, looking at the book of James, and we are almost done, kind of moving into chapter 4 just a little bit today, and the next week we will continue on with that. Uh, one of my favorite chapters from this book, but um, I want to focus today on something that James says at the very, very end of James chapter 3. You find it in James chapter 3, verse 18, where he says, Those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, growing up, I would have looked at that word righteousness and I would have been like, you know, I don't, I don't know what picture comes to your mind when you think of righteousness, but I, I always kind of pictured, you know, some holier than thou, perfect person, and I, I just always thought I couldn't... I, I could never hope to be that, right? I, kn I know myself too well. And so I just always kind of figured, well, that's off the table for me. But that's not what James is talking about. James is talking about this sense of everything being right in the world. As a matter of fact, righteousness, just what it means literally is right standing, right? And so with James, he uses this term, as far as our righteousness with all kinds of different, in all kinds of different relationships, our right standing between heaven and earth in our lives, our right standing with the other people in our lives, especially those that are the closest to us, a sense of everything being right with my own, with my own relationship with myself, and a sense of rightness that with, with the way that, that, that I'm relating to the world. And those things sort of make up all of the relationships that a human being has. And when everything is sort of an alignment, James says, you get this feeling that is sort of like everything is right. Everything, not just right, everything is great. I wouldn't trade this for anything in the world. And this may be a little bit of an oversimplification, but I imagine every addiction that exists in the world is a result of human beings trying to manufacture that feeling trying to, to get to a point where we say, okay, yeah, everything's okay, everything's good. I, I feel good, I'm enjoying myself, life is good. And the way to get it, James says, is by planting seeds of peace. Now, there's another thing that doesn't, the Bible's definition is different than mine was growing up. I would have thought that peace was the absence of conflict. So if I was going to plant seeds of peace, then that meant that I was going to have to never introduce conflict. I was going to have to never confront anybody else because otherwise that's the absence of peace, right? 
But if you look through the Bible, what you will find over and over and over again is God saying sometimes the only way to peace is through conflict. Sometimes the only way to peace is through confrontation. And no matter what you think about that idea on a geopolitical level with nations and war and all that kind of stuff like that, you know that in your relationships, this is absolutely true. Sometimes the only way to peace in your closest relationships is to introduce conflict, to confront, so that in the end, true peace can reign, right? Same thing with myself. I'll have wars going on within myself sometimes that the only way to get to peace is by confronting myself and, and what's going on inside of me, moving through conflict and getting to the other side. And when we have that, that sense, when we have that feeling, then we don't really care what anybody else thinks about us, right? We have this sense of everything being okay, People can think whatever they want to think about me, but, but I, 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 am, I am confident in my place in this world. That's, that's, that's sort of the result. And uh, I don't know, you know, I show this uh, video clip every Father's Day. Uh, these are a group of guys that I think uh, probably have that. Let's watch. Ha <laughs> This is Dad Life. It's how we live, 24-7, 365. Check me. Gas station glasses, don't care what the masses think about me with my sweet goatee. I'm rocking my Dockers with a cuff and a crease. I got that St. John's Bay and the clip for my piece. I look nice. I got dozens of dollars and that's right. It goes straight to my daughters and my wife. I'm a miracle dad, making magic with the checkbook is the talent I have. I roll hard in the yard with a 60-inch cut. Zero turn radius, my neighbors say, what? They be driving by, peeping my landscape. Yo, these greens got nothing on my manscape. Hydrangeas, begonias, crepe myrtles, ornamental turtles. Hold up. Is that a weed in my fescue? Aw, oh, nah, round up to the rescue. It's the dad life, it's the dad life. Take my daughter to the party. It's the dad life, it's the dad life, it's the dad life. Shooting vids of the kids, it's the dad life. Roll up to the splash pad, 10 a.m., my whole entourage. Hops out the minivan, we splishy splashy for an hour or two. Then it's back to the house, yeah. prepping for the barbecue. Brats, dogs, wreckers, whatever. Get me on the weaver, man, nobody does it better. Call me Lord of the Grill, I'm king of the coals. Nana's secret recipe, you know how I roll. <laughs> 1080p, 16 by 9. I'm rocking man cave status with a screen like mine. Keep your peanut butter hands off my 50 inch Vizio. Pop up the corn, roll the Disney video. We got Aladdin, Jasmine, Abu, the genie. With kids like mine, everybody wants to be me. Sing the night song and then it's off to bed. This is the dad life, no more to be said. It's the dad life, it's the dad life. Hit the mall, coaching ball, it's the dad life. It's the dad life, it's the dad life. Playing rough, fixing stuff, it's the dad life. It's the dad life. 
who obviously don't care what anybody else thinks about them, right? They are secure in who they are. And that's what all of us want. Now, it doesn't mean you want to be those guys, right? But, but we all want to have that feeling that when I am who I am, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. And the way to get there is by planting these seeds of peace. So what does that look like? Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at the life of a guy named David, one of the greatest lives ever lived, far from perfect, right? Made some monumental mistakes in his life. But even the way that he responded to his failures teaches us a lot about how to, about how to have that kind of life, this, this kind of life where we have this sense that all is right in the world. Uh, and so this week, we're going to look at his successes, especially one in particular, with a giant, and then next week we will look at uh, his failures and how he responds to those and how, how that, we can learn a lot from that, because I don't know about you, I fail more than I would like to admit, and so I think it's pretty important to know how do I handle that too. But for this week, how do I handle success? And the first time that you run into David, he's not even a king yet. As a matter of fact, he's a little boy, and scholars believe he was probably somewhere between 10 and 15 years old. And Samuel, the prophet of God, doesn't even know who he is. He just knows that God has told him the next king of Israel is, he lives in Bethlehem, a place where Jesus would be born a thousand years later. And he says, he's one of the sons of a man named Jesse. So you go down there, you anoint the new king. And so Samuel gets there and he tells Jesse what's going on. And Jesse gathers all of his sons together, except for one, because... I mean, you know, we're crowning a king. Why would I call David in from the fields? Even his own dad didn't think that he was king material. And Samuel walks in and immediately looks at David's oldest brother, Eliab. And he thinks, man, that guy looks like a king. And God says this in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. God says, don't look at how handsome Eliab is or how tall he is because I have not chosen him. God doesn't see the same way people see. People look at the outside of a person, but the Lord looks at the heart. And what God says about David is that there goes a man after my own heart. And I remember the first time I read that about 30 years ago, and I thought, well, what, did, what would that even look like? If, I want, if, I, if it was my goal to become a man after God's own heart, what, what about David made him that? so that I could maybe cultivate some of that in my own life. And that's what we're going to spend the next few minutes talking about, is what are these at least three things that David had that made him a man after God's own heart. The first one is uh, that when he saw a need, he had a servant heart. If he saw something that needed, a need that needed to be met, it's not like he filled every single need that he came across, but he had this way of life where if he saw a need, he would basically check in with God and say, is that something we're going to do together? Is that something you want me and you to handle right now? And if God did, then he would step into that need. And if God didn't, then he would go on and he'd keep his eyes open looking for the next need. But after he was anointed king as a little boy, 
Not too long later, his brothers go off to war with King Saul. And David stays home with his family. He's still watching the sheep, right? He's still living at home. I don't know. I wonder what it must have been like with his mom, with his family. You know, he cuts up in the morning and comes out and says, well, is the king, the king of Israel washed behind his ears last night? You know, let me check here. Was the king of Israel born in a barn? Why didn't you close the door? You know, I don't know if that's what was going on, but he, he was continuing to live the, the life he'd always lived. He's not old enough to go to war yet. And so his dad sends him to go check on his brothers to see how they're doing. And so he heads out to what's called the, the Valley of Elah. And what had happened was the Philistine army had come towards Israel. And so Israel had set up on the top of one of these hills on one side of the valley. And the Philistine army, they came and they stayed, they set up on the top of the hill across the valley. Neither army wanted to give up their, their tactical position, right? You're in a good spot if you were at the top of a hill. And so for 40 days, they, stood, they sat like that. And every day for 40 days, a guy named Goliath would walk down to the bottom of the hill and he would issue this challenge. The Bible says Goliath was over nine feet tall. That's that's a big dude, okay? An average Israelite in that day was probably like 5'3". So like almost half this guy. I mean, probably coming up to here on this guy. And Goliath would go down and he would basically mock the armies of Israel. He would mock the God of Israel. He would curse them. And then he would say, Let's not have a battle between armies. Let's have sort of, you know, it's almost like he says, let's have a death cage, a steel cage death match. You know, mano y mano, and whoever wins that will, will win the war. But nobody wanted to fight him. Not even King Saul, who the Bible says stood head and shoulders taller than all the other Israelites. And so even he didn't want to go fight him. And so this happened for 40 days. Finally, David walks in one day. He doesn't know what's been going on, but he gets there just in time to hear Goliath issue his challenge and utter his curses and his his mocking. And David looks around at these other soldiers, you know, this little boy. He's like, so who's going to fight this guy? You know, we can't let that stand. Somebody's got to do something. And all the soldiers, suddenly they're, you know, checking their armor. And, you know, it's like, you know, nobody wants to meet David's gaze because nobody wants to go down there and fight. But David's like, he sees this need and he's like, all right, then fine. I'll do it. A little boy, right? Now, we'll get into what happens after he does that. But I want you to notice that David, and this isn't the last time it'll happen, when he sees something that needs to be done, it's like he says, is this something we're going to do, Lord, me and you? And if God says yes, then he has got that. He's like, okay, I'll do it. Now, if you want to have, well, look at what he says to, to, to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 32. David says to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged. I, your servant, will go and fight this Philistine. It's that servant heart that was a big part of what made him a man after God's own heart. Because at, at the heart of God is a servant. Jesus, a uh, thousand years later, when he walked in the same area that David walked, He would say about himself in Matthew 20, verse 28, even the Son of Man, even I came not to be served, but to serve others. And so if you want to have a a heart that beats with God's, if you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, you have to keep your eyes open for needs. And then you can't meet every need you come up against, but you need need to check in with God. Is this something we're doing? And if if you feel like God is saying, yeah, yeah, that's something that me and you are going to do together. Well, then you step into that need. 
That's, that's, I mean, that is, I would even say, and I don't think this is exaggerating, I would say that you are never more like God than when you, than when you serve somebody else out of love for them and out of love for God. Because that's, I mean, that's who he is. So in response to need, David had a servant's heart. Number two, in response to challenge, he had a confident heart, okay? Like I said, somewhere between 10 and 15 years. He's, he's not old enough to go to war. He, he, but he's willing to go and fight this giant that nobody else will fight. And so the king brings him into his tent. And he asks him, he's like, he's like you, you can't fight this giant. What makes you think you can? This is what David says in uh, 1 Samuel 17, verse 34. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. And if the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears and I will do this to this pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. See, his confidence David's confidence, he doesn't think he could go down and take Goliath because he's been working out and he's getting pretty strong. You know what I mean? That's not, it's not like he's learned martial arts moves and so he knows he'll... That's not what's going on. David's confidence is not in David. It's in this God who has rescued him time and time again already in his life. He's basically expressing the same sentiment that the Apostle Paul would express thousand years later in Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 when Paul would say I can do everything God asks me to with the help of Christ who gives me the strength and power. See Paul's confidence is not in Paul. His confidence is in the God who gives him who, who walks with him. The God who gives him the strength and power he needs. Same thing with David. David's confidence is not in David. David's confidence is in God and that is a huge part of what it means to have a heart that beats with God's, a heart after God's own heart. But there's a third characteristic that I want to look at real quick, and that is that David, in response to success, had a humble heart. Now, humility is not, it's a hard word to translate out of the languages that the Bible was written in into English. Because I don't know what you think of when you hear the word humble. Usually in, in, in our culture, we think of somebody who's humble as sort of shy, sort of self-deprecating, somebody who says, oh, I'm not really that great. You know, don't, you know, I, I, I can't really do anything. That is not at all the picture of humility that the Bible gives. As a matter of fact, the the ultimate picture of humility in the Bible is Jesus himself. Jesus is the most humble being in the universe. He is also the most powerful being in the universe. So we wouldn't put those two things together, but God does. Because for God, humility isn't a lack of power. It is taking my limited strength and power and abilities and bringing them together with God's unlimited power and strength and abilities and saying, okay, what are we doing today, Lord? And then he leads you into whatever that is, and you step in in confident humility, knowing that, well, that if God can bring you to it, or if God does bring you to it, then God will bring you through it. That's, that's David's sort of way of looking at life. And so he convinces King Saul, and King Saul says, okay, well, let me give you my armor. And it doesn't fit David. It's, he's, he's a little boy. 
right? It doesn't work. And so he takes it off. He says, no, I've got everything I need with my shepherd's crook and my sling and just wearing this, this peasant's tunic that he was wearing. And so he walks down the hill towards this giant. And he gets to the bottom of the hill. He picks up five stones, puts them in his pouch, and he stands up to face his giant. And Goliath is looking at him. He's like, what, what is going on here? Right? In 1 Samuel 17, verse 43, look, Goliath says, am I a dog? He says, you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. But David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And it's funny because it's like, it almost seems like Goliath is trying to say, go away, little boy. You know, you, you, sh you don't know the danger that you're in. So I'm going to try to show you, you should turn around and run away. And David is almost like, you think I'm the one that should be scared? Do you have no idea what you have gotten yourself into here? And it had to have been one of the most surreal moments of Goliath's life. And he's looking at this little boy and thinking, what is going on? Now, I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you're just kind of confused. You're just kind of like, what is happening? Um, I remember I, in the 80s, there were these heavy metal hair bands, right? That they would, I mean, they were headbangers. They were rockers. But at least one song on every album had to be a ballad, right? And heavy metal ballads were that sort of schizophrenic thing where the 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 chorus, or the verse, would be real sweet and melodic and gentle. And then you would get to the chorus and they would just let loose and it was back to heavy metal. And then they would go back to the, to the verse and be all soft and sweet. One of my favorite Christian comedians, Tim Hawkins, talked about how his son's poetry was like that. His son's poetry would start off all sweet and gentle and then it would take this very dark turn. <laughs> and he said, I realized that it's like those 80s hairband ballads and so I'd have thought, what if I take my son's poetry and put it together with one of those ballads? And so he wrote this song that he called Fire Ants. You'll see. Hey, little caterpillar, such a pretty caterpillar. I know that you're going to be a beautiful butterfly someday. I don't know if that's going to happen because I have decided to beat you to the fire ants. The fire ants. They're going to eat you up. They don't care about you. They're going to eat you up now. Fire, fire, fire. Yeah. Wow, you're going to die. Sweet, sweet, sweet. <laughs> hey, 
trying to scare him. Little boy's going, me be scared? Dude, you have no idea what you have gotten yourself into. And this is a perfect picture of humility. Okay? Humility is not weakness. It is, it is having confidence that between me and God, we make a majority no matter where we go. And so, it may look like I'm outnumbered, but I'm not. David goes on um, talking to Goliath, and I, I just want to say this real quick. Every single one of us, at one point or another in our lives, will face some kind of giant, right, that, that we just don't know how we're going to get past. It might be a spiritual giant. It might be a physical health type giant. It might be emotional or psychological or an addiction, whatever it is. God wants us to face our giants, and he wants us to do it with confident humility. And do you know what the last thing that you're supposed to do according to the Bible before you go out to face your giant? You talk some serious trash to it. And uh, I know it seems strange, but look at what Dan David says to Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, 46. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me and I will kill you and cut off your head. Today I will feed the bodies of the Philistine soldiers, all your friends. I'm going I'm to kill all of them too and I'm going to feed them to the birds of the air and the wild animals. Then all the world will know that there is a God in Israel. Everyone gathered here will know the Lord does not need swords or spears to save people. The battle belongs to him and he will hand you over to us and it's at that point, Goliath loses his patience. He comes near to attack David, and David ran quickly to meet him. He ran. He runs towards this giant. My favorite picture of this is uh, in the 1980s, there was a movie called King David that Richard Gere starred in. He was David. Uh, the, he doesn't play the little boy David in the, in the battle with Goliath, but the little boy that plays that part, he's just sort of trotting towards Goliath, right? And he's winding up his... Uh, his sling, and Goliath throws this huge spear, and David doesn't even break stride. He just kind of leans like this, and the spear goes right, right, I mean, right over his shoulder, right past his head, and he just keeps trotting, you know, just almost like he's like, that's the way it looks like, right? And he lets go of that stone, and it brings that giant down. And I know that we think that it's that stone that kills the giant, or at least the sword, his own sword, Goliath's sword that David picks up and hacks his head off with uh, after that's over. It's like, this is not a PG you know, story, right? But that's not really what brought that giant down. What brought that giant down was all of the preparation that David had done up until that point in his life. He's not getting ready to fight the giant as he walks down that hill. I mean, to a certain extent he is. But the thing that, that, that brings David victory in his life is all of the things that came before, where he had been 
developing this connection, this sense of the presence of God, becoming a man who, when he's, or a little boy at this point, who when he saw a need, he responded with a servant's heart. When he, when he, when he came across a challenge, he responded with confidence. Confident humility. And if you want to face down the giants in your life, that's what it's going to take. Now, if you're here today and you're thinking, gosh, I would love to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. What would I even do? What, what, what would my first step be? And I think I would say it would be praying that God would open your eyes to the needs in your life that he wants you to meet and then running towards those needs with confident humility, knowing that if he brings you to it, he will bring you through it. Next week, we will get together. We will kind of continue this idea. We will talk about David's failures. We will also talk about spiritual warfare and putting on the whole armor of God and what that's going to look like. But for this week, let's pray and ask God to open our eyes to the needs that are all around us that he wants, that he wants us in partnership with him to meet. Father, we come to you and uh, we, we want so badly to be men or women after your heart have a heart that beats with yours. So Lord, open our eyes to the needs that are all around us that you want us to step into with a servant heart so that we can become more like you. And as we do, Lord, help us to respond to those needs and those challenges with confident humility, knowing that you will get us through whatever it is that you want or that you bring us into. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, Father's Day at the end of, uh, well, we showed the, the, the video earlier. Uh, we're going to show it again now. If you've already seen it, you are free to leave. Thanks for coming. And if not, you can watch it. And uh, thanks for coming, everybody. This world can analyze and size you up and throw you on the scales. They can IQ you. They can do their best to rate you in, they'll place you on the charts, and then back it up with scientific smarts. But there's more to what you're worth, but they're human.